Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Can't get enough of true crime content like Serial and Making a Murderer? Join the club. Sundance Now Doc Club is a new premium streaming service for curated nonfiction content. From the Peabody award-winning original true crime series The Staircase to Oscar award-winning documentaries like Murder on a Sunday Morning, Sundance Now Doc Club has an ever-growing library of critically acclaimed true crime content. Available on web, mobile, Apple TV, and Roku. Start streaming the vast collection of true crime titles and get your free month at www.docclub.com slash crime. That's www.docclub.com slash crime. Hey, Kevin. Hey, yes. Did you get our newsletter this week? Oh, <laughs> I did. What was in it? The official, or I guess the unofficial, unauthorized, but totally awesome Crime Writers on Drinking Game. Written by one of our listeners. Yeah, yeah. So explain it for people who didn't get the newsletter. Well, you can sign up for our newsletter right now at crimewriterson.com. And if you sign up for it, you can get back issues when we send our next newsletter out. So you also can play the Crime Writers on Drinking Game. Let me just say this. I wouldn't recommend it if you had a drinking problem. You'll probably be drinking a lot if you actually play along. But it was written by a wonderful listener of ours. So check out that newsletter. Sign up immediately. It's something that you can do right there on our website. You know what else you can do on our website, Kevin? Uh, You can go to the Amazon link? To support the podcast, you can go to the Amazon.com link and do all the shopping that you would have done anyway. And I know people are doing that because our friend Toby has a list. A list of things people purchased in the last seven days using that link at CrimeWritersOn.com. Should I roll it? Of course. What is this, amateur hour? (laughs) All right, ready? Ready, Mark? Get set. Hit it. Princess Kids, 24 pairs, sticker earrings, pack of three. On the go, happy birthday, lunch, napkins, and place, party kit for eight. It's like so awesome. Let's let's get another one. Sea monkeys, the sea monkeys, the sea monkeys. Sea monkeys, sea monkeys original instant life. <laughs> I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. Today we'll be discussing the thought-provoking podcast series from the Australian newspaper called Bowerville. 
We'll also be answering some of your thought-provoking questions and listening to your comments. And joining me to do just that is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Good day. I don't know. What am I supposed to say? (laughs) (laughs) That's Toby's line. (laughs) I stole Toby's line. And also on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. And also joining us is noir novelist and persnickety penman, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. You know, I sent out a tweet this morning trying to find like what was kind of a what's up in Australia. How do you say what's up? in Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I'm not even going to try and do the accent. Just do it. Do it. Do it. How you going, Rebecca? <laughs> that's, How you go? That's racist, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm racist against Australians. No, you're not, because I'm looking at I'm looking at your Twitter feed, and you you've got a Foster's right next to your microphone tonight. It's a themed night. It is. Well, I uh, wish that I could be drinking an Australian wine, but I'm just drinking my regular like box Cabernet. Tonight. How do you say it again, Toby? It's how you going? I got a whole bunch, but that was the one that definitely won. How you going? How you going, Toby? That's <laughs> more like, New Zealand, right? a little bit New Zealand, yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. Sound, sound like those dudes from Flight yeah. of the Concords. Did you see that one where Aziz Ansari is like giving him a totally hard time and like won't sell him fruit and stuff? Yes. Because <laughs> yes. he thinks they're Australian and then we're like, no, no, that's not us. Well, the reason that we are making such a fuss over the land down under is because we've been getting lots of podcast recommendations, including one from the land down under. And to introduce it, here is Beverly from Dorchester, Massachusetts, who sent us a voice memo about a five-part podcast from Australia. I'm just going to play it, and then we will talk about it. Hi, crime writers. This is Beverly from Dorchester, Massachusetts. I'm still loving the podcast every week. It makes my Saturdays. I wanted to talk to you about the Bowerville podcast from The Australian. I was hooked from minute one, and I believe that this is the closest podcast to serial season one that I think we've heard. I like how the reporter was realistic about the scope of his story and how long it could be. I believe it's only five episodes. But I thought it was very well done and a very compelling and sad story. So Beverly thinks that Bowerville is an heir to Serial. I like to go around the horn, find out if you've listened to the show, which wrapped up with its fifth and final episode this week, and get your general thoughts on it. Laura, did you listen to Bowerville, and what do you think of it? I did, and I actually commented last night to my husband that this is the closest thing to Serial that I've listened to. I loved it. I may have even liked it better than Serial because I loved the Australian accents and the Australian words and the culture and everything that was part of it. What about you, Toby? Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I think it's definitely the best of the post-Serial true crime podcasts. And there were things I liked about it more than I liked Serial. I thought it was great. What about you, Kevin? Yeah, well, of course I listened to you. You made us all listen to it. (laughs) Um, Hey, listen, don't pull back the curtain too far, okay? (laughs) (laughs) What are we talking about? Why why didn't you tell me about this? Yeah, no, I'm actually glad that we were exposed to this because it's it's actually kind of funny because it's part of a a larger podcast show. As of today, we're taping this on Thursday evening. It is now its own feed on iTunes, which you will include in the post for this episode. Episode. We've also included all of the episodes in the post for this episode. If you go to crimewriterson.com, look at this episode. You can listen to Bowerville right there. Go ahead, Kevin. It doesn't capture the sort of uh, joie de vivre that Sarah brings to Serial. However, as far as the journalism and a story that is interesting and go somewhere, 
I think that there are very few that have been able to pull that off. You know, right down to the last minute of the podcast, I was still intrigued. So a quick primer for those of you listeners who haven't listened to Bowerville, you might just want to pause right here and go to our website, crimewriterson.com. Listen to the five episodes. They're not very long. You'll get through them pretty quickly. But We'll still be here when you get back. We'll still be here. Bowerville is a five-episode look into the murders of three Aboriginal children in New South Wales, Australia. There's strong evidence that a local man is a serial killer, and this guy has been twice tried and twice acquitted for the crimes. So the central question of this show is, will the families ever find justice? To get a little bit closer to that answer, just so happens, guys, surprise, I spoke to someone who knows a little bit about Bowerville. I'm just going to roll the interview right now, and we will talk about it on the other side of it. My name is Dan Box. My title is National Crime Reporter for a paper called The Australian, based in Sydney. Uh, You might know me through a podcast called Bowerville, which I've been working on for the past few months. And it's about a serial killing that took place over here in far north New South Wales. I'm wondering, I know it is a uh, complicated and long story, but can you briefly summarize uh, the case for me? It is a complicated story, but at its heart, it's really simple. Essentially, there were three children who were murdered over five months. And they all came from the same small country town. In fact, they were all staying on the same street when they disappeared. Now, that happened 25 years ago. And today, their killer is still on the loose, despite the fact that police say they know who it is. And they think they've got the evidence to put him in jail. Now, I'm interested to know a little more about your career as a crime reporter and how this case got on your radar. How far outside your regular beat of coverage at The Australian is Bowerville? Well, the thing is, I think this shouldn't have been outside our coverage at all. I mean, you look at it, it's horrendous. It's three children who were killed by quite probably the same person. So it's a serial killing and it's gone unsolved for 25 years. And beyond that, it resonates with you know, a huge part of the identity of what it is to be Australian, which is these kids were Aboriginal, and the guy police suspected killing them was white. So that chimes with a huge part of the identity of living in modern Australia today. And yet it's a case that again and again and again has been forgotten or has been overlooked, including by myself. I've been working as a crime reporter here for a little over four years, and... For the first couple of years, I barely knew about it or I might have heard the name, but it didn't mean anything to me. It wasn't until I sat down with a cop, the lead detective, for a cup of coffee that I really started to learn anything about it at all. You touched on something that I wanted to talk about. I'm wondering if you can describe, you know, the underpinnings. You talked about the identity of Australia, big part of it being in this relationship between the white population and the Aboriginal population. But can you talk about that a little bit more? What does that look like? And for those of us who, you know, aren't as familiar with the cultural divide there, can you just give us a little bit of those underpinnings? Obviously, I'm speaking about this as a British person, so I'm kind of coming to it as an outsider myself. But... The history of Australia is that it was settled by the British who sent over their convicts. They had too many people for their jail, so they sent them over to Australia essentially to get them out of the way. So the nation was founded on an invasion of essentially all white prisoners who landed in a country that was going pretty well for the Aboriginal people who lived here at the time. 
the result of that was you know, predictably horrific. There was genocides, there was rapes, there was displacement of a people, there was a complete loss of a culture. A lot of stuff which, you know, if you look at modern American history, you guys will understand just as well. And those tensions still exist today. So there's a day every year in January which we celebrate Australia Day. So we celebrate being Australian. But the Aboriginal population, a large part of those, they call it Invasion Day. Hmm. because they see the two things very differently. In Bowerville itself, it's a really small town. And when you go there, the first thing that struck me as a complete outsider was just how segregated it was by race. So literally on the top of the hill, there's the mostly white town, few Aboriginal people living there. And at the bottom of the hill, in a place they called the Mission, that's where all the Aboriginal people live. And I can tell you that it's a far rougher environment living in the Mission than it is on top of the hill in, in the mostly white part of town. And so when you get something like this, where you've got children who are Aboriginal, who the police suspect are killed by a white guy, then all of those factors come into play. You can't look at this case without talking about race. Well, one of the things that really struck me in the earlier episodes, when you were talking to family members of the kids who'd gone missing at that point, they should have been missing persons cases, but the um, family members were told by the police, it seems, a couple of times when they would show up to report their child missing, you know, there's nothing we can do, or, or you know, we're, we're, we're changing shifts right now, or, yeah. you know, what do you expect us to do? And you sounded really yeah. shocked by that in the podcast, and I'm wondering if that's something that, since this podcast has come out, has the conversation looked in that direction in Australia now that this case has gotten more publicity? It has. The thing that stunned me when I was talking to those families was, so you had the three kids, Colleen Walker, Evelyn Greenup, Clinton Speedy Giroux, each of their families went to the police to report their child missing. And at some point, each of them was told by the police officer, well, maybe your child's gone walkabout. Now, walkabout is a phrase they use in Australia where an Aboriginal person, the idea is that they'll just go wandering. That's the kind of the, the white perception that an Aboriginal guy will just go walkabout into the deserts or into the bush. But it's a prejudice, it's a perception. So when these families were told, well, maybe your child's gone walkabout, we're not going to do anything about it, they were horrified, particularly as one of these kids was four years old. So she wasn't really going to go walking very far on her own. Has the conversation changed? Certainly one thing that's knocked me back on my heels is the number of really heavyweight people from the Aboriginal sort of political sphere over here, so federal MPs, or the couple of guys who are actually on the Prime Minister's Indigenous Advisory Council, including the chairman, have come out and have started talking about this case as part of a number of criminal cases where they say injustice has happened again and again and again. And they've traced back cases over the past sort of 20, 30 years. Quite often cases where Aboriginal guys have been in police custody and they've died. That's something that comes up over here, not infrequently. Hmm. Tragically, it's it's not infrequent at all. Now, Dan, why did you decide to turn this reporting project into a podcast? I'll tell you the reason for that was, over the past couple of years, I've done a handful of short articles 
on this case that have never had much impact in the paper. And that's not a criticism of my bosses, but they've been small articles and, you know, down page six. But last December, there was a, a decision where the families had asked the government to reconsider the double jeopardy laws, which stop a person being sent to trial for the same crime twice. The families had asked the government to reconsider those. And there's a lot of evidence that maybe you could change the bar, make it easier for that to happen. The government had thought about it, had gone away, had come back, commissioned a review. It had taken about a year. And finally, the week before Christmas, they came down and they told the families, we're not going to change anything. We're not going to help you out on this one. And the photographer I was working with took a video of the family's reaction. And I showed it to a couple of my colleagues here in the office. And it was so powerful because you could see these people in tears talking for themselves, describing the hurt they were feeling. And it was after that that I thought, to tell this story, it doesn't work if I talk to these people and then write their quotes down in the newspaper. You actually need to hear them talking for themselves. Mm -hmm. So the idea with a podcast was that the families could tell their story and the police who were involved could tell their story and the lawyers could tell their story. And the people listening would actually hear it directly from them without me getting in the way as much. That was the hope. One of the things that I really like that you're doing in the podcast is there's a little bit of transparency in your reporting. You know, you talk, for example, when you're in the car with somebody and you say, you know, I pulled over and turned on the recorder and asked him to repeat what he had told me. So you're actually showing the process of collecting the tape. I mean, at one point, you know, a goat sort of comes at you when you're on uh, Jay Hart's yeah. father's doorstep and, yeah, yeah. And, and you leave those bits of tape in and you're transparent with a listener telling them what you're doing. You know, we hear you knocking on doors. We hear you trying to connect with with people and then refusing. We hear your frustration. Yeah. How important do you think that transparency is in telling the story? And is that something that just works better in a podcast than it does in a print story? Oh, definitely. I think it works better in a podcast. You're kind of at such a remove in a print story, telling something just through words. Whereas in a podcast, because it engages the imagination, because you're listening to it, you can actually you know, try and bring the listener along with you a little bit on the journey of trying to find out what was going on with this case. So I guess that's why we wanted to do it. There's two reasons maybe. One is I think it helps tell the story. It helps fire the listener's imagination. And, and also, you know, we didn't manage to kick every goal on this. People did refuse to talk to us. When I did that key interview or potentially key interview with the main suspect's stepfather, he had a pack of feral goats who were living in his garden. And one of them was so close to our microphone. And I didn't even notice that because I was concentrating on him because I'd been told it was pretty scary. I didn't even notice the goats until we listened back to it. But it is part of the story. It helps put you where we were. You mentioned a minute ago you were talking about the double jeopardy, the, the families trying to get movement on that double jeopardy law. You know, we have double yeah. jeopardy here in the United okay. States. You can't be tried for the same crime twice. But it sounds like in Australia there is a loophole for double jeopardy. Okay, so the history of this is that these kids' families have spent the last 25 years fighting for their case. And one of the things they did, unbelievably, was they actually got the government to change the double jeopardy laws once, uh, way back about eight, ten years ago, maybe slightly less. But they got the government to say that the laws could change. So you could send someone back to trial if there was sufficient fresh and compelling evidence that hadn't previously been heard in court. And if you think about it, it makes sense, particularly with DNA. If you've got a case from 30 years ago, pre-DNA, and suddenly you find some DNA evidence that shows you who the killer is, 
then there's a good argument that that should go to court because we just didn't have the opportunity to hear that evidence then. So the law was changed here and it's, it's not so much a loophole, it's just a recognition that maybe the court didn't get the decision right because the evidence wasn't there the first time. But the process here, and this is the thing that absolutely sticks in my craw with this case, is that for it to happen, you need to go to the appeal court, and the appeal court has to overturn the original verdict and order a retrial. But, and here's the problem, if I was, say, a convicted killer, and I wanted to appeal my conviction, I could go straight to the court and I could say, I want to appeal it, and they can decide whether or not they hear that case. But if I'm the family of a murder victim and I want to appeal the suspected killer's acquittal, which is what's happening in this case, I can't go to the court and ask them to decide if they're going to hear it. I have to go to the Attorney General or the state's director of public prosecutions, the, the sort of chief law officers, and ask them to ask the court to do it. And what's happened in this case is the families have done that. They've asked these, these senior legal officers. And those legal officers, rather than just saying, well, the court can decide this, they've said, no, we're not going to send it to the court because we don't think the case is strong enough. Are the attorney generals elected? Yeah, the attorney general is elected. So the attorney general is a member of the cabinet out here, so a member of the state government. The director of public prosecutions isn't, that's not an elected position. There's an element of complexity and a lack of transparency in the system that, as a reporter, I really struggle with. Speaking of something that you struggle with as a reporter, I know here in the U.S. we have... Uh, you know, a certain set of libel laws that we have to be concerned about. And one of the things that really struck me about your podcast is you, I think, teased the possibility of your main suspect, Jay Hart's innocence. But you did spend several episodes really yeah. pointing to him as the main suspect, laying out some evidence against him, talking to some witnesses who had some very compelling yeah. evidence against him. Yet he's been acquitted twice. And I'm wondering if yeah. there's any hazard there for you as a reporter in doing that. Yeah, there is. We've got pretty good lawyers, but there's definitely a hazard there. So, straightforwardly, Jay Hart was found not guilty of two of these killings in separate trials. And yeah, we are canvassing the possibility, or certainly the suggestion, that he is still the police's chief suspect, which means we've looked at all the evidence, or as much of the evidence as we can, that maybe he did do these crimes. And so you run into huge issues of, of risk of defamation. But there's a couple of things. One is he's left town and he's changed his name. And the other is that our lawyers thought on this one we'd take the risk, and we thought it was worth reporting this one. We're not the only ones to have named him, I should say, right. which makes it easier for us. Other media out here have named him in the past, so we're not standing on our own. But certainly still, yeah, we were very aware of all those issues you've talked about. I was reading an article yesterday that mm. talked about the Australian being the unlikely hero of this story. And I have gotten some emails from Australian <laughs> listeners, full disclosure, saying that it's a Murdoch-owned publication and, you know, it's dodgy and, and so forth. And I, yes. I I don't really know what the media landscape is like there. I apologize. But I'm curious to know your thoughts okay. about now that this case has gotten so much attention and this big new look. How do you feel about being called the unlikely hero in this story? About the paper being called that? Yeah. Look, Murdoch is hugely powerful in this media market. He's hugely powerful internationally, but particularly in Australia, Murdoch owns a huge chunk of the media out here. And the Australian, the paper I work for, is one of the most sort of vocal parts of that. And we're pretty belligerent at times <laughs> when we think we know what's right. 
and we back ourselves, and that makes us unpopular sometimes. But you do have to give credit to my boss on this one. So my editor-in-chief, when I was planning these podcasts, I had this idea that we'd spread them out over two and a half weeks, and I'd maybe do one article for the paper to coincide with the launch of each episode. And by now, I was expecting that maybe the article would be buried somewhere on page four, if I was lucky. But my editor-in-chief has picked up on this, and we've had something in the paper every single day over the past two and a half weeks, and quite a few of those have run off page one. So whatever people say about us, certainly on this case, and I would argue on other cases, we campaign for what we believe is right. Well, that's it's what journalists are supposed to do, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> and I'll tell you one thing, as a journalist, particularly now with the industry, you know, the way it is, it's fantastic to be given the opportunity to work on something for as long as I have with this. And also to be given the opportunity to stand up and say in the paper, I think this is wrong and I think someone should put it right. You know, before I let you go, I was wondering, we did talk about the walkabout a little bit. A couple of other yeah. sort of cultural language things that have come up that I'm not yeah. 100% sure my audience understands. A caravan, that's like a trailer, right? Like something you pull behind a car that's like a camper? That's exactly <laughs> it. But probably in your country, it's a lot bigger. And certainly where I come from, it's, it's smaller than even they have here. But yeah, it would be a small trailer that you can sleep in and it's got a small kitchen in and you know you can take it on holiday pull it behind your car I don't know how long you've lived in Australia but when you first moved there have there been other expressions that you had to eventually just ask somebody what does that mean <laughs> oh yeah constantly all the time and I still find them now the other big one is pronunciation so a lot of the, the place names out here have aboriginal names and they're not always phonetic so I've been on the phone to people who've you know, I've asked them, you know, how do you get to Wagga Wagga? And they're just laughing. Oh, I can tell you're not from round here, boy. Because for some reason it's pronounced Wagga. I muddle through as best I can. Well, Bowerville itself is not the easiest uh, word to pronounce. No, it's not. <laughs> so I just want to ask you one final question. This podcast, what do you think, you know, in terms of outcome could happen now as a result of this reporting? Look, I think things have changed just in the time we've been doing the podcast. So the police are now literally as we speak, doing the final sign-offs on a, an 18-volume submission calling for their main suspect to go to retrial. And for the first time, the state premier, so the guy who leads the government out here, has said that that application will be heard independently of the government. So for the first time, the decision to send this back to court won't be made by someone from the state government. Look, my bottom line, give away what I think on this, I think all the evidence about all three murders should be heard in court at the same time, which has never happened. My best hope is that that does happen, that the person who makes a decision sends this to the Court of Appeal and says, let's hear all this evidence together. I don't know if that would happen. Uh, but if you'd asked me three weeks ago before we started doing this, I would have thought it's less likely than I think it might be now. Well, Dan Box, I can't thank you enough for joining me. Your podcast is fascinating. It's beautifully produced, and your reporting is just really, really compelling. So thank you so much. Not at all. Thank you for the time. It's a pleasure to talk. Again, 
Again, that was Dan Box. He's a national crime reporter for The Australian and The Voice and reporter behind Bowerville, that five-episode true crime series put out on The Australian's podcast feed. The podcast can be a little bit tricky to find, so we've put a link to it, plus all the SoundCloud embeds of all five episodes right on our website, crimewriterson.com. So, Kevin, what did you think of my interview with Dan? I thought it was great. Interesting journalist. And this, you know, this was a great project for him because, you know, you go out into, I guess, is that considered going in the bush? Going. Walkabout? The walkabout, you know? (laughs) You go out there, and when you have the idea that we have a mystery, but we also have a suspect. That makes it tricky and makes it compelling. And so it's not like you can just, you know, when you're trying to figure this out, it's not like you can just go to the post office and look at a wanted poster. <laughs> because I don't go to the post office anymore. I just use stamps.com. You do, yeah. Yeah, I save lots of money with stamps.com, too. I get the exact postage the instant I need it. No more overpaying or, or worse, underpaying, and it comes back. And uh, I even get special postage discounts that I can't get at the post office. So why would I go? Right now, you can sign up for stamps.com and you can use our promo code Crime Writers for this special offer. It's a four-week trial. You'll get a $110 bonus offer with this. That includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com and before you do anything else, you click the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Crime Writers. That's stamps.com. Enter Crime Writers. That was very smooth, Kevin. Is there anything else that we need to talk about before we continue with this podcast? I was going to say that I thought that Bowerville's great because I really learned a lot. And it's kind of like taking one of those courses at the Great Courses Plus video learning service where you can learn about anything and everything with unlimited access to the Great Courses lecture series on hundreds of topics. You seem unimpressed so far. I'm a little Uh, bit unimpressed. What kind of topics are you talking about? Can we learn about Aboriginal People? You can learn about anything. I mean, right now, all the right. course that I am taking, and they would like us all to uh, peruse, is called Forensic History, Crimes, Frauds, and Scandals. And, of course, there's hundreds of others. But you, you go and you get this for absolutely free. This course is taught by Professor Elizabeth Murray. It's so fascinating. Uh, she starts off with one, I'm going to call it an episode, but it's not really an episode. It's a lecture. The first one is on Jack the Ripper. All right, And looking back at that, and um, there have been some other great ones about Hollywood homicides and Hollywood mysteries, like, you know, the death of George Reeves, who was TV Superman, and um, the Black Dahlia killing, the Chicago Tylenol poisonings, and this one that I'm about to, to watch right now, it's a double bill, Lizzie Borden and the Menendez brothers. Whoa. Yeah, wow. I know, right? And wait, it's very- wait, is that about people killing their parents? Is that what that's about? Uh, yeah. Well, I have, I'm guessing there's a theme there. <laughs> can you recite the poem, Kevin? Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40, 40. wax. 30 yep. or 40? 40. Just let Toby 40. do it. Oh, yeah, Toby, you go ahead. You know, I don't want to take your... That's still no, no, I want you to go ahead. Yeah, no. <laughs> just... I, I just want to critique. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. All right. <laughs> Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax, and when she found what she had done, she gave her father 41. Close Very enough? Nice. I think it's exact. That's my interpretation. It's exact. <laughs> okay. It's, it's exact. Well, I don't think we're going to go... Maybe we will go into the poem. I don't know. But we're actually going to take a look at that crime along with a whole bunch of others. I can do that anytime I want with The Great Courses Plus. I can watch as many different lectures as I want. And now you can, too, by going to The Great Courses Plus. They're offering our listeners a chance to stream these hundreds of courses, including Forensic History. That's a $235 value, and it's absolutely free when you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash 
crime. Start watching today. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash crime. All right, Laura, how do you think Kevin did reading those ads this week? I think the first one was a little stronger than the second one. Really? Really? Okay. So, Don't tell uh, the advertisers that. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Toby? I'm going to give him a um, 8.9 this week. All right. What about you, Toby? How do you think Kevin did reading our ads this week? Well, the second one's tough because you're just kind of like, do you have anything else to tell us? You're Kevin? right. You're right. There's no you opportunity yeah, for a transition. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Really but the first one was good and I sort of changing up my rating system. I would say that's brown belt. All right. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, here's the thing, guys. You you are, you are both uh, professional writers, as is Kevin. If you can think of a new way for me to help Kevin transition from the first ad to the second one, you feel free to go ahead and write that and send that my way. Okay, guys? Wow. <laughs> Someone's a little bitchy. Yeah. Hey, listen, I am almost out of wine. It's kind of a problem. All right. All right. So now you it's can, time. You can pause the recording. <laughs> That's within your power. So now it's actually time to talk about what we want to talk about, which is Bauer and that interview you just heard with me and Dan Box, the reporter who did that podcast. There are a lot of podcasts that strike out to solve a mystery. And I'm wondering with you guys, Toby, I'm going to start with you. How is the fact that there is an actual suspect that he identifies make a difference in telling this story? Well, I think it makes a difference in, in several different ways, one of which is you don't run into the problem that like in somebody knows something where you could potentially just end up with zilch mm-hmm. at the end. So you know that there's going to be some kind of, it's not necessarily a resolution, but at least there's, in the end, there's somebody that you can look at. And the way it ends, I thought was really, really well done. And I think the second thing is you kind of automatically ask the question, if it seems pretty clear that this guy did it, why is he still free? 25 years later, why did he get acquitted in two trials? So I think that those were the two things that to me were both, I thought, very compelling in the story, but were also sort of a product of you've got a very strong suspect right there from the beginning. Laura, what did you think that this show had that other true crime podcasts didn't have going into them that that made a difference that made you like it so much? Well, I think it was just the scene. I really loved the setting. I found really, really interesting. You know, I was I was learning something as I was listening because it was really interesting to learn about the the mission section of town and then the white section of town. And I loved hearing the different voices of the people that were involved. I felt like there was just a really great sense of atmosphere in this, but also, you know, telling it with this guy that we know is a suspect that has been acquitted twice, I felt a sort of sense of suspense in a way because I kept wondering, what is this guy going to do when he finds out this podcast is happening? And then also as a listener, I think it really, you know, in the same way that making a murderer got you kind of fired up, it kind of made me feel a little bit of a sense of outrage at the fact that they just couldn't prove this case. What do you think, Kevin? What was the big advantage this podcast had going into it for you? For them, I think that they had a very well-sketched-out arc of what was going to happen, where it was going to go. Because unlike with uh, with fiction, with, you know, with nonfiction, you do have to have a direction. And you do have to have, as we've been saying over and over again, the, the importance of an ending and a way to wrap it up. So instead of it just being a shot in the dark... They already go into it sort of like with a story, 
a possible way to end it, which would be the intervention of uh, circuit court new trial or getting. We'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> but I think they also, I, I mean, exceeded my expectations after having been let down by so many of these podcasts which was to get Jay on the phone. Right. Well, we will talk about that, too. But I wanted to talk about the fact that Dan Box is a newspaper reporter and that, to me, this five-part podcast played out very much like a series of articles. Like, mm-hmm. there was the one about what happened. There was the one about, you know, he sort of, like, laid it out in a series. And it reminded me a little bit of Breakdown, except that it also had the benefit of being, like, really well-produced. He had an audio producer with him, clearly. He, he, meant, he talks about the producer being with him on all these field excursions. And I will say... Anybody who's out there who's interested in producing a podcast about a story that you're reporting, the benefit of having a person with you to do the recording, to sort of be aware of the surroundings around you, to have somebody in the field to talk to about what you're looking at and what you're seeing, it adds a tremendous amount of dimension to these shows. If you just think about the audio that Dan Box had in the car with talking with his producer, very much like Sarah Koenig and Dana in the car together. You know, in the fifth episode. Yeah, it yeah. just it sort of gives you, well, you know, the producer sort of made little appearances here and there, but it sort of gives you the sense that like... You know, this is an audio project, too, and it, there's a sense of purpose to it that I that I really, really like. You know, Toby, I'm interested to know what you thought of the way that Dan talked about race and culture in this podcast. Obviously, that was a big theme here. You heard him in my conversation talking about how this sort of strikes at the heart of a huge conflict that's going on in Australia. What did you think of that whole, a whole part of the way he told the story? Well, I think that's one of the things that I found really compelling about it. You know, I think a few episodes ago when we were talking maybe about fiction, but I, I said that I thought that some of the best crime fiction really sort of shone a light on social issues in the, you know, country or, you know, society that it takes place in. And I think this did the same thing. I think it was both sort of specific to Australia, but then also you know, could definitely apply to at least the United States. So I, I, I thought that was a very, it's one of the things that I, I really liked about it. And I think one of the things that I liked that I thought was somewhat better than serial was that it seemed, it's definitely sort of social activism mm-hmm. to a certain extent on his part, where I don't think that was something that Sarah was necessarily that committed to or as interested in as he is. But the idea... <laughs> that comes through sort of again and again is that at least in this small town in New South Wales and Australia, white people and Aboriginal people are definitely viewed as, as having different worth. Laura, how much of a, a difference do you think it made that race was such a central factor in this podcast? Well, I'll say it definitely got my attention right from the beginning because he addressed it right from the beginning. And for me, I was not familiar with the dynamics that he was talking about. Um, I found it really interesting to hear about the Aboriginal people lived down in this section and then the white people. And I'm thinking, my goodness, this is like where we were, you know, I don't know, 60 years ago. It, it just seemed like a different time and place. But it sounded like this is something that is always present in their lives. And it was just, I don't want to say irony, but there was a certain sense of irony that this case was the three Aboriginal children and that the person accused was white. And I'm assuming all the police officers were white too. So I think it was definitely a compelling part of the story. I think there were other parts of the story that were equally compelling, but this was definitely a pretty big factor. I think it was both racial and cultural. You know, there's no doubt, you know, even in the U.S., the way that the white population views the indigenous peoples who were here is always skewed that view. 
they're marginalized. I mean, in the U.S., we have Native Americans who live on reservations, which it was essentially land that we set aside begrudgingly because we didn't want to take all of it, just almost all of it. And, you know, there's poverty and, and this one, but there's also a cultural disconnect where we just don't understand why they don't assimilate completely with us. I guess I shouldn't be surprised to see that in Australia too. But also the whole idea that, oh, well, this four-year-old went on walkabout? Yeah, that was crazy. I mean, that just, it, it's either like, you either have to have such a complete misunderstanding of what somebody's culture is, you know, that toddlers would be allowed to just go out into the bush on a vision quest, or you just don't care. I think a lot of it has also to do with poverty. I mean, I think that Mm -hmm. Dan does a good job laying out the class differences, too, in the Aboriginal community, in that neighborhood in particular. You know, he talks about, as fun as it is to talk about, like, the cultural differences, you heard us talking about the caravans and so forth, you know. These are properties that have like a little house and like a bunch of trailers on them. And it's very much what we saw in the Avery case in Making a Murderer. There is a definite class difference in what's called the mission, this part of Bowerville. Toby, I know that you looked at some of the online stuff around this podcast. Can you just talk a little bit about what you saw online when you went and checked it out? I just went to uh, Google Maps and just did the Earth view and you can just navigate the streets of Bowerville. I, I could narrow down to just based on what they were saying on the podcast to like within four or five houses, I think, wow. of where Jay lived. And then in the final episode where they talk about how he drives up one road, then takes a left and comes to a cross street, you can navigate that whole thing. You can see what kind of houses are there. Uh, Do you, you see can, goats? Yeah, there weren't goats. And, you know, sometimes you see like people in these things that I didn't. There, there were very few people that seemed to be out and about, which, you know, probably just has to do with the time of day or whatever. But apparently lots of goats, though, right? Because we kept <laughs> Yeah, but I, I didn't see the goats. The goats uh, were were away. The Randy goats. I think Google has to blur the faces of the people and the goats. Well, you heard me talking with Dan, Laura, about the rough audio and some of that being included and the transparency and the reporting. I know I really enjoy that when you hear somebody explaining how they got audio or what's going on in the audio. Did you enjoy that part of the podcast, too, when he sort of talked about, excuse me, the sound of this goat, you know, attacking me during this audio? Or, you know, when he said, I'm going to pull over the car and get you to say what you said again in the tape. Do you enjoy that journalism stuff as much as I do? Oh, I loved it. And I think it added like a whole nother level to this podcast in terms of the atmosphere that, you know, I was really able to feel like I could see where he was in my mind. The scene that I really liked was when he was outside Jay's house and his car was getting surrounded and I was like this guy's a dead man and we're gonna get it on you know (laughs) I mean that was pretty suspenseful when those people were like who are you what are you doing here so you know I I liked it a lot well I'm gonna actually be a little bit of a devil's advocate here because there has been and I think you heard me intimate this a little bit in my conversation with Dan there has been some criticism of this podcast from people who live in Australia we've gotten a couple of emails about it about the Australian as you heard me say it is a Rupert Murdoch owned paper there have been some taking sides on issues reporting done and I think there is a case to be made that Dan began telling this story with Jay as the central suspect. And, you know, he also, when he's in that scene, like outside Jay's house, it's like it began spinning out of control. So you expect it to spin out of control. I mean, there's definitely an editorial leading the witness going on with this podcast narration and the way the story is told. Did you pick up on any of that, Toby? That sort of him starting episodes and starting the you know podcast with a point of view and sort of leading us in that direction? Yeah, I mean, I think there was, that was the setup for the entire podcast. 
The police think they know who it is. Everybody thinks they know who it is. It's this guy. I, I just kind of wonder if, you know, Rupert Murdoch is such a polarizing figure to me included, but I didn't get the feeling. I, I just thought it was a, I thought it was a pretty solid investigation and solid storytelling. It seems counterintuitive that this is the kind of story that Rupert Murdoch would uh, be pushing because my sense of him without knowing a ton about him is that he's, you know, interested in, in what you would consider to be the, like the dominant culture. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it would surprise me to see him as a civil rights warrior in Australia. Well, I'm going to just take a minute and defend Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch doesn't make the editorial decisions on every section of the newspaper. I doubt Rupert Murdoch knows about Browerville other than the fact that somebody will probably point out you to him. You have to say it right. Bowerville. 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 Isn't that what I said? Bowerville? <laughs> no. I didn't say it like that? All right. You're so untrustworthy, Kevin, All as right. that tweeter said about your mispronunciation of Sarah Koenig. <laughs> uh, whatever. Um, but you're right. I mean, I guess my understanding from what people are tweeting at us, and maybe other people in Australia have a different view, but the Australian is kind of like, I guess, the New York Post or uh, a more sensational newspaper. So the fact that they're doing some substantive journalism is what the surprise is. I don't think that just because you are the New York Post or the Australian or the National Enquirer, that that doesn't mean that you can't have people who are intrigued by a certain story and will execute it well. You know, I don't think the Australian is at the level of the National Enquirer where they have like Bat Boy and stuff, but <laughs> you know, but you think about like the new, news that has Bat Boy. You think about the the New York Post, which I think Murdoch owns, which is a it's, it's a very politically maybe inflammatory is is too strong a word, but oh it's, no, it's, it's inflammatory. Very, you can say that about the New York Post. That's fair. Okay, and, and, and I think the Daily News is is the op is you know the liberal side of that, and I think I, I don't read the Australian, but I assume that it's sort of a similar. My association with Rupert Murdoch is that he's conservative. He supports sort of the traditional institutions in society. But I still say that it has nothing to do with this story. Right. No, I don't, I don't think journal- so either. Right. I yeah, mean, you know, another journalist working with another editor I don't wrote a thing that you. somebody believes was the wrong kind of thing. I don't disagree with you. We have a newspaper here in New Hampshire, The Union Leader, which is the only statewide newspaper in New Hampshire uh-huh. that has a right-leaning editorial page, period. Right-leaning? It has a conservative editorial page. It does, but nothing like it was... 20 years that ago when said, it was extremely that right. That being said, the newspaper part of the newspaper is just a newspaper with really, really good reporters, a lot of whom I know and work with and really, really respect. But there are a lot of people who are not able to draw that distinction between editorial and the journalism. And a lot of oh, people don't yeah. understand that difference, right? I, I just think that the fact that whenever his name comes up, it can be inflammatory and with good reason. It seems like that would lead people towards calling into question the reporting on this podcast more than the actual reporting on the podcast. Right. And I just want to say one last thing. The other thing that we got a lot of emails about was that a lot of other outlets reported on the story before Bowerville. But I will say Bowerville was the thing that got us talking about it and people like knowing about the story all around the world. So there is something about the medium, the way that this paper, the way Dan Box did it, that got the story out there. So let's just like, I want to go back to talking about the story because the thing that I found was so interesting is that we do have a suspect and the suspect has been acquitted twice. And there are two things that immediately came to mind for me. One is the double jeopardy issue. And the other one is the libel issue. You heard me talking about the libel issue with Dan Box. And one of the things he said was that Jay has changed his name. 
Does that matter in a libel case here in the States if someone has changed their name and you use their previous name? Do you know if that makes a difference or not, if you're calling them out as a suspect? Well, not if they can still be identified. Right. Uh, certainly yeah. not. And they could make that argument. But, uh, I mean, having been acquitted, right? you know, we're not talking about like O.J. Simpson where you're a public figure and the rules are different. Right. You know, if you've been tried twice and you're acquitted, I mean, you are skating on thin ice. Well, let's talk about the double jeopardy thing then. Laura, what do you think of Australians now new, I guess, double jeopardy laws that like you can go back to trial even if you've been acquitted? Like, did that your mind blow up? <laughs> it, it, just about. But it's it's bizarre. Like, I actually had to go back and like, did I hear that right? Is that so the police can appeal a case? To the appeals court, whereas here it would be the defense that would appeal a conviction to get overturned. It just didn't even make sense to me. And I understand how it came about. They were, you know, there was this case where somebody had perjured themselves and they were able to prove that and they wanted to bring the case again. I mean, it's so foreign sounding to me to hear this. It just I, I can't even imagine. I mean, how many times can somebody be tried on a case there? Although it sounds like it's very, very hard to get a retrial. And from what he was saying at the end, I mean, it it didn't sound like even though there had been efforts to get this retried, it didn't sound like there had been a lot of movement on that. It makes me wonder what safeguards are in place to prevent this person, whoever it is, whether it's this case or another case, from continually being brought back into court. One of the questions I had for you, Laura, was that Dan is making an argument. He said it to me and he also said in the podcast that if only these cases could be tried at the same time, getting all of the evidence of the three murders in the courtroom right. at the same time, it's a better case. Now, Laura, I know there's a reason why tactically you would try cases separately, right? Yeah. I mean, usually they sever cases. And even if it's some like a single defendant and say there's a single defendant that has, let's just use like a sex case for an example, and there's different victims. They may sever those cases into separate trials to prevent prejudicial information from coming in and further prejudicing the jury in a case. I can't imagine a case where you would have more than one case going forward at the same time. And I understand why he thinks that would be helpful, but I think from a defense point of view, that's really not helpful. Kevin, what did you think about that? I, I was really surprised. Again, Laura's point on like the double jeopardy and the cops being able to appeal. It's, it reminds me of the Amanda Knox case in the Italian oh my God, court yeah. system. Oh, yeah. Where you just keep going back, which is, again, very... Appealing acquittals is very un-American. It, it is essentially double jeopardy. I want another bite at the apple. Isn't that why but, we usually separate cases in the United States is because you can get that second bite at the apple. If, it didn't, if this one didn't uh, work, you can get them on that one. Yeah, yes, not the same crime, but a similar crime. Right. Sure, right. You know, you sometimes can have one in your back pocket if you don't want to create a big pile of things. I understand the philosophy behind the Australian precedent for that, where it's in the offender's best interest, where you say, look, you have two similar crimes. If you really can't say that they are the same, and, you know, there's there's substantial evidence that it's committed by the same person, then you can't bring it together. You can't start piling on a sandwich of things unless you have, I don't know if it's reasonable doubt or preponderance of the evidence or whatever. I guess it's the judge just decides. So I do understand that. You know, it's a protection for the accused in Australia. The problem is in this particular case, all three of those incidents were so tied together that they strengthened one another as opposed to just being three separate cases all tried at once, they were a sum greater than its parts because 
just because he's outside here doesn't mean much, but because he's outside at all three different things, it does. Right. But it's still very circumstantial. It is. It is circumstantial. This entire case is so circumstantial. Yeah, Laura, what did you think of the evidence that we heard? I mean, I, I don't think we heard, aside from the fact of proximity and... There was a pillowcase that was found with the boy that was killed. And a right. shoe. Right. And it was the pillowcase that may or may not have come from Jay's caravan. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what really struck me about this case is it seems like you can hear the story and you can hear what everybody says. And you're like, oh, yeah, this guy totally did it. But in a court of law... Everything was very circumstantial and there really wasn't anything that I thought was really concrete that tied him to it. It was like people saw him here. I think the most compelling piece of evidence was the guy that was laying down on the road Mm -hmm. um, that may have been the boy that was killed. The witness, yeah. Yeah, that was the most compelling bit. But I think the rest of it, they stitch it together and it sounds good, but you can still poke a lot of holes into it if you're a defense attorney. And even the producer did when they tried to recreate the alibi. He said, you know what, this isn't that yeah. nefarious, isn't it? Yeah. No, no, I'm interested, Toby, because I, the one big difference between this podcast and Serial, and I'm just going to assume if any listeners have gotten to this point, they've actually gone back and listened to the powerful episodes at this point. So I am absolving myself from any spoiler alerts. In the final episode, episode five of Bowerville, we get something that Serial was never able to deliver that a lot of true crime shows and podcasts are not able to deliver. And that is that we have tape of the reporter talking to the person that he has labeled the entire series as the main suspect. What did you think of the fact that Jay called Dan Box back and that we actually got to hear that conversation? What did that add for you? And what did you take away from that conversation? I I think it was a very good way of tying up the whole It was a natural climax. I thought it was a very interesting conversation because it's so ambiguous. He doesn't come out and strongly defend himself. You know, I've only heard it once, but that that was certainly my impression was that he he's just not very strong. It's not like, how dare you accuse me of this or, you know, I've already gone through all this. And why are you still hounding me? So I I just I thought it was really interesting. And I, and I, I look forward to listening to it again. When I was listening to it, and, and part of the reason why I might not be remembering it as clearly as I ought to, is that I was thinking about the end of the jinx, mm-hmm. and where it's a similar situation. And this, to me, seemed a lot more, you know, not that the jinx wasn't authentic and that it wasn't what he was saying or whatever, but this just seemed like a more authentic conversation than the jinx where the guy just has all these crazy tells and it's just like, okay, you're nailed. Yeah, I I thought it was a great ending to a very compelling series. Toby's right that it is a very good natural climax. And is this a segue to an ad? No, No, it's not. No, no. our 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 sponsor Trojan Condoms. Not to an Adam and Eve. (laughs) No, but you know, unlike Serial, they got their Jay. Now, of course, they weren't implying that Jay was Hayes' killer, but Jay was a central figure and a misunderstood figure in that narrative. Jay obviously has been the suspect throughout in Bowraville. So to get him at the end is a good way to. Now, it doesn't have the sort of kapow that the jinx did where, you know, we think, oh, the case has been solved. The thing that struck me almost immediately when Jay said it was he was responding because of the podcast. Mm -hmm. 
and you know, 24 years later, and you know, I guess if all these other newspapers have been writing about it, I mean, I, I don't think he's given any interviews to any of them. At least if he had, it was really downplayed in the podcast. It seemed like this was his J.D. Salinger. This was his goal was to go and get this interview with Jay so he could ask him X, Y, or Z. And even though, you know, it was kind of dramatic with all these people around and I'm going to call and make sure he doesn't uh, come to the door, to have him call the next day and to do this on the telephone was really enthralling. And he was also smart enough, and this is Mr. Box, was smart enough to know what part of this long conversation was going to be pedantic, which about, well, how about this and how about that? And he just kind of like said, we went through all of that, and then we got to this. But he wasn't smart enough to record the phone call in a studio. <laughs> My well, one critique of the uh, of that part of the episode. Well, he is a newspaper reporter. That's true. That's true. He's probably just a little pedal under his desk to record, just like they do in the My Newsroom. Um, Laura, I want to ask you, because the big setup to this phone call was that Dan Box and his producer drove to Jay's neighborhood where he lives now under a different name. I'm assuming a different last name because all of his neighbors called him Jay. Uh, He and his producer are sitting in the car and in a very small town way, they're sitting in the car. People just start coming over to the car and saying, what are you doing here? Which is a thing that would happen uh, in a lot of small towns in the world. Then they get a lot of secondhand information about what a good guy Jay is and how everybody universally kind of like likes him in the neighborhood now. And he just doesn't seem like they, they know why they're, the reporters are there. But they also know that it can't be possible that Jay killed anybody. He's a good guy. I'm best friends with his daughter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then we hear Jay on the phone and he sounds like like an incredibly sort of like normal, logical guy. What did you think of hearing Jay? What did you think of hearing these people talking about him? I'm just curious to know what you thought. Well, I think that everybody, like Ted Bundy was a likable guy. And I'm not saying Jay's like Ted Bundy, but, you know, it's like we were talking about last week with the, you know, the poor meatball guy there. He has moved on and he's on the straight and narrow now. And whether or not he did it, he knows that there is a suspicion that he did do it. So he's definitely... I think changed how he's living in a way Um, because I you know you don't hear the stories from the neighbors about the heavy drinking that you heard about in the first part of the uh, series I liked hearing from the people I did feel like the setup definitely for me added to the suspense because we did get this satisfying ending where he got the interview with Jay but leading up to that there were times I didn't think he was going to get the interview with Jay and I think that added to sort of the suspense of that final episode And then hearing Jay on the phone, he did sound like a normal guy. He didn't sound like a super sophisticated guy. He didn't sound like somebody who had like a pre-planned excuse or outrage like you would have expected. He just was kind of logically arguing why he didn't do certain things. But his logical arguments didn't really sway me because I don't think they had a lot behind them. He's just like, nope, didn't do it. It it was interesting. I mean, I thought that was really fascinating that he actually called him. I found that very unusual. When they were driving out to the house and they're doing all this audio, I'm thinking, oh, well, this is just like the deal with Jay episode where we're hearing all this because nothing is going to happen. And I was just waiting for them to drive by the Australian crab crib. Um, (laughs) But then I think that's to me why it was a surprise that he got the phone call because I think because it just seemed like he was just kind of wrapping everything up and it's like this isn't going to happen and then it does. Now Kevin I just want to go back to one thing that you and I talked about briefly while you were listening to the podcast. You took umbrage with Dan Box's description of the FBI's profile of what a serial killer is right? Can you just go through that real quickly? Yeah he cited the female researcher whose name escapes me but he looked at her 
documentation based on research from the FBI. Basically, what he says a serial killer is, his information is completely wrong, completely off base as far as the, the things. First of all, there, there is no typical serial killer profile. So that's out there. But most of the time, you know, there are always outliers. But this is what the FBI has found through all of their years of researching at Quantico, these kinds of killers. The idea that they are interracial killers, almost never. Right. Almost never. They almost always stay within their race. Black kills black, white kills white. Do they ever stop killing? Sometimes they do if something else in their life comes along to replace whatever the killing is fulfilling. Usually that is some sort of psychosexual replacement. It isn't just that they stop. Sometimes they stop because they go to jail. So the idea, you know, that if this were a true textbook serial killer, we might expect that after the third kill, there would be more. So I don't know if that means that the perpetrator is a serial killer, per se, because, again, this offender could be a complete outlier. But I just think that some of the things that he threw out there that seem to fit like, oh, well, this is why it could be Jay, because these victims are X, Y, and Z. I just didn't buy that. I don't know if the semantics about serial killer, to me, it seemed like here's a violent, racist guy in a small town. and Alcoholic. Alcoholic. And he was in situations where he killed three people. I mean, this is all allegedly, of course, but he killed three people. And because he was living in a small, racist country town, he got away with it. Mm -hmm. And I would be shocked if there aren't similar stories in the U.S. of similar white people getting away with doing that to African-Americans. I think, and we, I, know, I think we certainly know even from the Grim Sleeper case that was you know recently tried in California that serial killings committed upon poor communities are not investigated in the same way as serial killings committed upon affluent communities. I think we know that to be true. The Long Island serial killer is another example of that, you know, sort of these marginalized communities being targeted. I do wonder, though, and the reason I interjected with the drinking thing is if whether or not the sort of substance abuse component of this, you think about what somebody is capable of doing when they are, you know, drunk or high, if they grow out of that behavior, could they also grow out of the violence that comes from the behavior? I don't know. I'm not saying that, but that was another theory that I sort of was playing with as I was listening to that. There's also, there's a long history on, in both Australia and the U.S., about really treating the Native people as certainly less than white people. And, you know, until two years ago, for instance, if you were a white person who raped a Native American woman on a reservation, the reservation police couldn't do anything. Oh, did no. you read that book, The Roundhouse? Uh, I would recommend reading the novel. I think, Laura, that's so what you're talking about, The Roundhouse. Yes, fantastic e- novel. Excellent, excellent novel that sort of deals with that exact issue. Yeah. Well, we do have a tradition on this podcast, and that is when we're sort of done talking about an episode or a thing, we just give it a sort of general grade. And I'm curious to know, you all seem pretty enthusiastic about Bowerville. Laura, I'll start with you. If you're going to give Bowerville, the five episodes of it, your enjoyment of the series, a letter grade, what grade would you give it and why? Well, in honor of the new Crime Writers on Drinking Game, I'm going to give a grade (laughs) above a B plus. Yes. And uh, I'm going to give an A because I loved this podcast. 
I was listening to it in my car. I just, I loved it. It just was very compelling, and I hope he does more. What about you, Toby? Yeah, I haven't been thinking about the drinking game this entire time. Right, right. So. By the way, full disclosure, Kevin and I are going to talk about that briefly in our pre-roll that we do before oh, the are? show. So the, uh, the audience will know what we're talking about. So. All right. Go so ahead. interesting, interesting, interesting. Oh, oh, drinks. my God. You just got oh, so many people sloshed. Oh, my cat. <laughs> that, just that's the whole by. point. We're almost at the end. Um, <laughs> Wait, how do your kids feel about that? Oh. <laughs> Easy. Check out the drinking um, game rules. So anyway, I, I would give it an A. I I enjoyed this as much as, if not more, than than any of the other podcasts that I've listened to. What about you, Kevin? What grade do you give the five episodes of Bowraville? I give it a B plus. I I thought it was good. Well, you know, it wasn't the best one that I've heard. I but I definitely think you know the story was good and interesting. It was good hard journalism, and they did a good job with it. It wasn't just another podcast that just you know didn't go anywhere i also very much liked the setting as well it was sometimes a little hard to kind of understand what the, the fuck a caravan was yeah you know <laughs> the- you know if you watch the rest of depressing valley the the guy the bad guy lived he was going to the caravan place yeah, yeah, that's, caravan right. park. Yeah. that's yeah. how i knew what it was yeah, yeah. but you know also sort of being like in the outback you know you can just kind of imagine how rugged all the guys look i wouldn't fit in there because i would be like very clean shaven and that's because I would have used my razors from Harry's. Harry's.com. Wow. You can get a really good shave at a good price. I haven't even given my grade yet, Kevin. No one cares. Okay, give your grade. A minus. Okay, go ahead. All right. So <laughs> so we, we've tried uh, Harry's razors here, and, uh, you know, they make one razor that is for everybody. It's five blades. It's made in their own special factory. These guys, uh, two guys, started the company they wanted a better shaving experience for all and they have their own razor factory in germany that's been crafting some of the world's highest quality razors that deliver a superior shave i don't know if in australia if when you go to whatever the equivalent of walgreens is there if it's all the uh, razors are with the machetes behind a giant glass it's behind case. a boxing kangaroo that will beat you up if yeah you if you do yeah. why deal with that just get those great razors sent directly to your door. Harry Starter Kit is just $15, and that includes a razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. I like the shave cream. I uh, like the cream, too. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. As, an, oh, as an added bonus, you can get $5 off your first purchase with code CRIME. After using our code, you get an entire month's worth of shaving for just 10 bucks. So that Harry Starter Shed, it's called the Truman. Get it, Harry Truman? Yeah, yeah, That's the Starter Shed. This is great for dads and grads. This time of year, we'll give you $5 off your first purchase with uh, promo code CRIME. Go to harrys.com right now and look at the Truman set. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Enter code CRIME at checkout and get $5 off and help support our show. Stop compromising. Give Harry's a try today. Do they have a Hamlin? Oh, I don't know. We should. <laughs> Wasn't he the guy who was in... Uh... Yes, he played Quest Perseus. For the gods or something. He played Perseus in the original um, Clash of the Titans. Yeah, yeah, he was also in L.A. Law, by the <laughs> way, of course. All right, so I just want to do a, a couple of very quick uh, listener voice memos that we got this week. Uh, the first one that I want to play is from Harry in Reno, and he's disappointed about a podcast that we've talked about a whole lot on the show. Hello, crime writers. This is Harry in Reno. I just finished Someone Knows Something, and it seems that, in fact, no one knows anything just as you had feared. 
This led me to recall the episode where you discussed endings are important, and I feel like this kind of fell flat. By contrast, I don't think that season one or two of Serial fell flat at all. I think that Sarah's bigger picture was to make us think about the incarceration system and the way police handle that and prosecution in season one. And I think in season two, she wanted us to reflect on the war and who we're sending there. So even though they ended a little awkwardly, I still appreciated them much more than Someone Knows Something. So Toby, real quick, no one knew anything on Someone Knows Something. Do we get to say, we told you so, yes or no? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And Laura, if you were going to give the producers of the next season of Someone Knows Something a little bit of advice, what advice would you give them? I would say if they're doing an unsolved case, they need to do an unsolved case with more mystery, more potential suspects, or unusual circumstances surrounding the crime, or actually have some sort of an ending in mind before they start. I think the pacing also could be a little better. You know, there was faster. A, yeah, you know, there was a lot of, you know, sort of natural sound of them walking through the woods and starting fires and stuff like that but where nothing was really happening, which might be visually compelling because they, they're actually coming from a visual documentary background, but not all of that translates into a compelling podcast. Devil's advocate, Kevin, because not everyone was disappointed with Someone Knows Something. A listener named Kelly wrote to us and said, I'm a person who has been searching for a lost relative myself. I can say David's podcast hits home. It may not have a satisfying end for most of us, but he has truly captured what it's like searching for a missing person. Nothing is ever wrapped up. Nothing is ever over. So, Kevin, if the truth is complicated, is it asking too much for an ending that isn't complicated? Maybe. Maybe so. Because you can't get the the ending that you want, which is why I think that you have to be discerning when you are choosing a story. Finally, speaking of endings, I want to end this segment of the show of listener questions by playing a voice memo from one listener I just think deserves a little airtime. Hello, Crime Riders On. This is Sherry from Alabama, sometimes considered a foreign country. I'm a substitute teacher, a mom of three, uh, have loved your coverage since Serial, Serial Season 2, and thank you for covering other shows and pop culture. Um, I was very interested in what I learned about Serial Season 2, and I love your insights. I have a son that's in an airborne unit uh, stationed at Fort Bragg in the Army. Thank you so much. I love you guys. I love Rebecca, Kevin, Laura, and Toby. Your Amazon readings are awesome. Just thanks for everything y'all do. Hope to hear myself since I'm from Alabama. So here's my question for each of you. Let's go around the horn. Kevin, is Alabama a foreign country? Yes or no? Yep. I've been there. Yep. (laughs) Laura, is Alabama, does it count as a foreign country or is it a place that's right here in America? Well, I don't know. I'm from Vermont, and a lot of times I think that's a foreign country. Um, But, yeah, it it could be. I mean, uh, Sheila the Peeler was from there. Yeah, my book, (laughs) Sheila the Peeler. (laughs) What do you think, Toby? Alabama, domestic or foreign? Uh, My wife is from Alabama, (gasps) and my in-laws, who I love very much... Do your kids have dual so. citizenship? <laughs> they do. I take it back. <laughs> they can work anywhere in the South. <laughs> okay, now it's time to move on to my favorite part of the show, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the, the week. week. Guys, remember the Babysitter's Club? Yeah, the teenage yeah. book. How yeah, about yeah. the Babysitter's Gang? That's what police are asking after 28-year-old Rachel Einspar allegedly robbed a bank with two children in the car that she was being paid to babysit. <laughs> Double. Police say Rachel drove up to the teller window of a bank in Severance, Colorado last week and claimed there was a man in the car threatening the children and forcing her to demand $500 in cash. The teller, worrying the kids might actually be in harm's way, forked over the money. 
So now police say there was no man and this babysitter was just using the kids as cover to execute the robbery. And now she's being held in jail on charges for the crime plus two counts of child abuse. So here's my question for each of you. If you decided to commit a crime and if your kid or kids were in the backseat of the car, would they go along with your ruse? Would they help you out? Would they protest wildly? In other words, how successful a criminal would you be if you were depending on your offspring as cover? <laughs> Kevin, what about you? Um, okay. If I had Lily, she would crack under a direct question. <laughs> um, if, it, if it were Henry, I think he'd be solid. I think he'd back me up. If it were Teddy, he probably would be the culprit and I would have to back up his story. So you're saying my kids are criminals and yours is virtuous and perfect. Hey, we're a blended family. And that's the way it works. <laughs> what about you, Laura? Oh, my son would never. You know, it's like, you know, when you have to like whisper things in front of your kids and then they still hear you and they say, what? Mom, what are you talking about that for? Yeah, it would it would never fly. We would get arrested so fast. <laughs> what about you, Toby? Would either one of your kids be a good co-conspirator in your criminal conspiracy? Yeah, I think my, my son would probably be pretty psyched for it. And then with my daughter, it would probably be a matter of like having to frame it when I was explaining what we were about to do as an adventure or something. Or it's not really that bad. But, uh, it, we're going to play it would, a game with persuading. the policeman. That's right. All right. I guess we should probably end it on that note. Before I let you go, Toby, how can our listeners find you on Twitter if they want to commit a crime with you and or your daughter? At Toby Ball NH. Laura, you are on the Twitter, right? I am. It's at Laura Bricker, L-A-R-A. And Kevin, how can people find you on the Twitter? I'm at the same place I'm always at, at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to send me a tweet or follow me on Instagram, you can find me both places at Reb Lavoy. Our little show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. So send us your questions or comments in a tweet or send us a voice memo. The directions for how to do that are posted on our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our awesome newsletter, make a PayPal donation, use our Amazon link. And if you love this show, please leave a review on iTunes. It really does help us out. It helps new listeners discover us and keeps us on the charts. Our theme music was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in Studio C at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. at Closet Slash Maybe Kill Room in our basement. <laughs> On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. And joining me to do just that is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. We should be able to hear him. Thank you, Toby. What in God's name is going on? What do you mean, what in God's name is going on? I was hearing... Yeah, that was was me just making noises. What did you think about that? Did you think that was a good way to set it up? I don't think it colored my computer. I think it does. Wait, Laura? Laura? Laura, we have a bad connection with you. Oh, it's a train. Yeah. There's a train going by your house. Yeah, there just wait. Train, and it's a freight train, so it's very rumbly. <laughs> Holy shit! Is there is there a UFO activity? Laura, we can't even hear Laura, you right now. Laura, can you say prepare to be as- assimilated? <laughs> Toby, do you hear this too? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so weird. I can hear you guys clear as day. Is there like nuclear waste on it or something? Yeah, no. I think the government, it must be like jamming frequencies around oh, the train. jeez. Laura, you literally sound like the worst thing I've ever heard right now. 
It sounds like like a '60s horror movie where somebody's like stuck in Antarctica and it's like can barely get through. Sulu, can you increase the power on that signal? <laughs> Today's sponsor is Sundance Now Doc Club. Sundance Now Doc Club is your destination for a rich library of true crime content. Don't miss out on the original true crime series, The Staircase, and other captivating true crime films on Sundance Now Doc Club, available on web, mobile, Apple TV, and Roku. Start streaming now and get your free month at www.docclub.com slash crime. That's www.doclub.com slash crime. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. 